I'm Stuart Kelter, and this is Delving In. Today's guest, Lisa Bartolotti, is a philosopher at the University of Birmingham in the UK, focusing on the philosophy of psychology and psychiatry, investigating faulty reasoning and irrational beliefs, delusions, confabulations, and distorted memories, and the limitations of self-knowledge given our unreliable self-narratives and self-deception. She is the author, co-author, and editor of several books on such subjects, and the editor-in-chief of the academic journal Philosophical Psychology. So Lisa, welcome to Delving In. Thank you very much for inviting me. So first of all, Lisa, how did you get interested in the field of philosophy of psychology and psychiatry, a field not as well developed as the philosophy of mind? And along the way, please explain the difference between the two between philosophy of mind and philosophy of psychology and psychiatry? Yeah, that's a very good question. So when I started out being interested in, in philosophy more than 20 years ago, definitely the philosophy of mind was one of the main areas in philosophy that you could study at university. And definitely where I studied in Italy, we didn't have, for instance, modules on the philosophy of psychology or psychiatry at all. You'd be studying philosophy of language and philosophy of mind and philosophy of science and the various kind of overlaps between those subjects. However, when I started studying abroad, especially in the UK, immediately I realized that there was a lot of pressure on philosophers to be aware of recent psychological theories and recent studies and discoveries in a way that were being explored in also clinical psychiatry. Not all philosophers interested in the mind would be reading empirical stuff, but I think I had very good role models, David Papineau, for instance, at King's, and then during my PhD, Martin Davis. And these were philosophers who were very interested in how scientific theories and psychological studies were actually impacting on theories of the mind. So the idea wasn't anymore that the philosopher should be aware of the science, but actually that the scientific research should be a constraint on the theories that the philosopher was developing. So you don't make much sense to build a beautiful theory of consciousness if all the evidence that is available out there suggests that that theory cannot explain the things that we are interested in. Similarly, in my case, because I've always been interested in reasoning and belief and rationality, you don't make a lot of sense to build a wonderful theory of what human rationality is if it's something that actually human agents cannot achieve. And if the psychological evidence repeatedly and systematically tells us that actually we don't reason in that way. So I think when I started, I think it's fair to say that philosophy of psychiatry and philosophy of psychology were still relatively underdeveloped in Europe, although in the US, I think it's slightly different. They were already more developed. But in the last 20 years, I think they've just exploded. And there is so much interest in the kind of potential fruitful collaborations between philosophers and qualitative psychologists or psychologists interested in clinical phenomena or even proper clinical cases. That is very difficult nowadays to approach any topic in the philosophy of mind without some reference to what is happening in the sciences. Now, you ask about the difference between the philosophy of mind, the philosophy of psychology and the philosophy of psychiatry. 
So I would say that historically, certain topics have found a more natural home in one of those subjects. So for instance, let's say consciousness or dualism versus materialism, we think of them as philosophy of mind topics. Whereas questions about reasoning or questions about biases, we tend to think of them more as philosophy of psychology topics. However, because of the slow evolution uh, of the subjects that I've just described, I think it's, it will be very difficult nowadays to be able to draw a distinction between these subjects based on the topics. I think it's mostly a methodological distinction. So the philosopher of mind, unless they want to, doesn't need to address scientific research on the topics that they are thinking about, whereas the philosopher of psychology or the philosopher of psychiatry can see their role in two ways. Either someone who offers a commentary, analysis, and an evaluation of those sciences or medical fields that constitute his subjects, so psychology, cognitive science, social science, or, or psychiatry, or someone who addresses all questions that we may be interested in thinking about the mind in an empirically informed way. So the distinction is much more methodological. So the interest in the empirical constraints is much more accentuated in uh, a, a philosopher who defines themselves as a philosopher of psychology and psychiatry rather than someone who defines themselves as a philosopher of mind. Although sometimes if you think about the department of philosophy in the US or in the UK, you'd find that the same people tend to deliver uh, teaching in, in, in those subjects. So practically, um, I think the distinction is shrinking. Yeah, or it's a, a fuzzy one in any case. Yeah, just to, I guess the, the classic topic in the, in, in the philosophy of mind is the mind-body problem. Are the mind and body different things? Are they the same thing? How does one come from the other? Whereas I think in, psych, in psychology and psychiatry and neurology for that matter, I think there's just a common assumption that it's materialism, that the, the mind comes out of the brain and that's all there is to it. And any further questioning about that is going to be fruitless or just unscientific in some way. And so that's not really looked at. Yeah, I agree. The other thing I wanted to mention is that it, in my graduate training, one of the first courses I took on abnormal psychology introduced the concept of nosology. I don't know if you're familiar with that term, but it's it's looking at the development of concepts as they relate to clinical psychology, with the assumption being that the validity of concepts is a kind of in, an interplay between how you think about things and, and what you find out to be true about things, but that there's a kind of I don't know if I want to use the word arbitrary, but it's not a, these concepts are not fixed. They, they can change depending on your conceptual model. And what becomes useful is what is usable. I guess I'm being redundant here, but it, it is a kind of bootstrap operation. What becomes useful is, is in fact, what's useful in clinical practice. And, and if it's helpful in, in a treatment situation, then you use those concepts. If not, then you let them go and try something else. I think that's absolutely true. And it's something that as a philosopher of psychology and a philosopher of psychiatry, we end up doing all the time. So we may start out with a concept at the beginning of our investigation. So we may say, okay, I'm interested in discovering what it is for a human being to be rational. But in the course of the investigation, and 
when we face different conceptions of rationality, when we learn about different studies that have explored the way in which humans reason in certain contexts, slowly and gradually, our initial conception of rationality changes, depending on what we find. And it becomes a very kind of interesting, but also challenging process by which you have to start at some point. So you have to start with a concept that you want to investigate. Otherwise, you cannot confine your research and make it feasible. At the same time, I think you'd be wrong to assume that the concept that you start with will necessarily be the concept that you end up with. In the course of the investigation, you realize that, again, there are constraints on what we may consider to be something that, for instance, human rationality embodies, and, and you start changing your way of understanding the concept. And these, the reason why I think it's challenging and I'm sure you have experienced that in your, in your career and your studies as well in psychology, is that you end up with different research groups who apparently, seemingly, are working on the same concept, on the same notion, let's say rationality or consciousness or optimism. But when you look at how they operationalize those notions, you find that they use different criteria and they measure optimism, rationality in different ways. And so actually it looks, it might look as if they agree on something or they disagree on something, but they may actually end up talking about different things. Yeah, I, I think a, a prime example that it's in psychology, especially in evaluative kind of psychology is intelligence. To, to the layperson, intelligence just is intelligence. It's obvious, but yet it's not obvious because it can involve many different kinds of capacities. And there's a debate in clinical psychology, is intelligence is one thing? Is it, does it even make sense to talk about general intelligence? We, we talk about it in AI, generally intelligent AI, but it's, it's similarly with people. Does it even make sense to talk about one number that's going to describe a person's intelligence? Or there's several. So one example is Michael Jordan was a genius when it came to uh, athletic ability. Is that a kind of intelligence? Why not? And then you have musical ability and linguistic ability and nonverbal and just there's a whole host of things. And I, I think currently there's more acceptance that it's a multi-dimensional concept. But again, it, it's you start off by thinking, oh, we're all talking about the same thing. But then after a while, he goes, wait a second, are we talking about the same thing? Is there even a thing <laughs> to be talked about? Or is it so amorphous that it, there's a kind of arbitrariness to how it's divided up? And, and that also applies to difficulties with, with uh, neuroscience. In order to label what a function a particular part of the brain does, how do you get to define that function? It's not written in the brain. It's imposed on, on, into, onto the brain. And does it help understanding or not is really the more the question rather than whether it's quote unquote real, a real distinction. So I, I, another question I have for you before we launch in to the nitty gritty here is you're involved in projects that aim to destigmatize mental health conditions, especially for young people. And I'm wondering how your work on the philosophy of psychology relates to this, because that's really interesting. I've, I don't think I've ever met a philosopher <laughs> who's involved in those efforts. No, that's a really good question. The collaborative projects that I've been involved in were projects where we were looking at how young people accessing emergency services, for instance, for their mental health. So young people who had, for instance, thoughts of suicide or felt miserable or depressed reacted to the interactions that they had with healthcare practitioners 
and how healthcare practitioners acknowledged or dismissed the young people concern in the clinical encounter. Now, as you pointed out, why a philosopher? To be honest, it was a team effort and I was the only philosopher. So we had psychologists, we had sociologists, we had clinicians, of course, with uh, clinical experience. We also had a group of young people with lived experience of accessing mental health services, and they were co-researchers and co-analysts with us. So it was a very mixed group. And I guess one of the key roles was for the people to analyze conversation. There is a, a method called conversation analysis, which focuses on how people talk to each other, not only the words that they say or their intonation, but also their nonverbal clues. For instance, the gaze or the poses or uh, the way that the body moves when there is a conversation. And analyzing how healthcare practitioners and young people related to each other in these encounters were absolutely key. But then I think there is also a little bit of a role for a philosopher because you can observe a lot of interesting things about these relationships. But then if you want to give a message, and we did want to give a message to future practitioners because our aim was to give some recommendations for training for people who were going to um, talk to young people in distress. You also need to come up with a synthesis of what is it that is happening when the interaction is not a good interaction. And it's an extremely difficult thing to do because you have a lot of different interactions. They may be going wrong for different reasons, but talking with people who had lived experience, it actually appeared quite clear that there were some areas that were the focus areas, the key areas. And one of of the areas was curiosity, for instance. In a lot of the interactions that didn't work out well, what happened is that the practitioner didn't show any genuine curiosity into what was happening to the young person. They went through the tick box to try and find what the possible diagnosis was, what the risk assessment was, but there was no um, actual interest in what had happened to the young person. And this was for the young person, absolutely the most important thing, even more important than getting support afterwards, because many of these young people didn't have anybody else to listen to them, not in their families and not in their group of friends. So it was very important to be acknowledged as someone who was seeking help and had a genuine concern. So I think the role of the philosopher there, together, of course, with everybody else, was to look at the data, to talk to people and to build a picture, a slightly more general picture about what it is that we need to improve in order for uh, these interactions to go better. Now, you may ask, what, what does stigma have to do with this? Our feeling is, and, and it's the assumption that we started the project with, that a lot of the interactions go badly when practitioners dismiss young people. And that may happen because of certain biases that they might have against those young people. Those biases may come from the kind of sense that these people are in a crisis and very often they are and so they might not be judged as reliable or as providing information that you can build on but also specific biases about people being young and so being inexperienced being attention seekers all those kind of assumptions that sometimes we make about young people 
which are very rarely actually uh, well-founded, but may help us discredit what they're going to tell us in a certain context. So again, the role of the philosopher there is to bring a little bit of background knowledge on how these things work. How is it that we have assumptions that color our experience of the world and of other people and try to draw some general conclusion from this data? So maybe this does in some way relate to the philosophy of mind in the sense that if you treat a person as only a body and a physical brain that has a tendency, I think that kind of assumption has had this, has a tendency to uh, look at the person as a mechanism. And if you look at them as a mechanism, then you may as well be a car mechanic you know, trying to diagnose the problem rather than treating the person as a subject. And it seems to me that's probably the most important thing is that the person being helped has to f feel validated as a subject. Yeah, exactly. That's our conclusion that we talk about it in terms of agency, but that's exactly what you just said. So the idea is that if you think that the other person is an agent, someone with a valuable perspective on the world, even if you don't share that perspective, you think it's valuable, it's something that you should be interested in then a lot of things are not going to happen. You're not going to objectify them. You are not going to give them a very quick diagnosis, even when it doesn't really fit the kind of things that they're telling you. You're not going to try and change their own descriptions of their own experiences. And you are going to try and involve them in decision-making processes, while, of course, acknowledging that the per young person themselves doesn't have uh, the capacity to make decisions about future support uh, without support uh, by the clinician. So it's not a question of burdening them with a lot of decisions and responsibility that they are not a, in a condition to, to accept, but to make sure that they understand that their perspective is taken into account and that they are part of the process. So they're not the object to which you are doing things to. It's, an, it's a subject, as you were saying earlier, who can intervene and also contribute to change in the future. Yeah, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Tom Anderson. He was a, a Norwegian family therapist. He's passed away probably, I don't know, 10 years ago. He developed a technique called the reflecting team. And it was a kind of, you might say, a postmodern approach to family therapy, where the observers to the session would uh, eventually have the camera and the sound system on them and the family and the therapist gets to eavesdrop on the observers. And the observers would talk about what they heard in a very tentative way, offering multiple ways of looking at what's going on. So it's not only treating the, the each family member as a subject, but the, as actually more than one subject, <laughs> that there's more than one point of view, more than one uh, framework for seeing how things are going on. And very respectful. It also leveled the playing field between the therapists and the family, that everyone is just in there together trying to understand what was going on in, in a very uh, humble way. Yeah, I'm not aware of this work, but it fits perfectly with our general attitude towards this. And one of our examples um, is, for instance, a young man who is being told by the practitioner that they, did, they weren't really suicidal, 
because at the time when they had these suicidal thoughts, what they would describe as suicidal thoughts themselves, they were also planning to attend a meeting of a society at university. So the idea was, oh, but if you were planning to meet your friends and have a drink with them, surely you weren't thinking about terminating your life. So this is a complete, I mean, apart from the objections that we might have to this kind of forensic way of addressing people in distress, because these are people at an emergency service. The idea is that there is no realization that human agents are complex, that they might have conflicting interests and desires at the same time, that they might be seriously thinking that their life is not worth it and still making plans about the immediate future. There is no conception that they may be complex subjects with a lot of different things going on in their lives, right? So that I think is is very telling. And, and that's why I really like the phrase that you used earlier. It's not just you treat them as a person, you may treat them as more than one person, because it's true. And I think we are all more than one person. Ah, okay. That made, I think I actually meant more than one person, but that's okay. <laughs> I think you're right on that score too. And so the, the next topic I wanted to talk about is the concept of neurodiversity, which I think also relates to the concept of stigma. If people are different rather than disabled, or maybe you could be both, I don't know, but where is the emphasis going to be? For instance, I think with autism spectrum disorder, especially in the less severe forms of it, what used to be called Asperger's uh, syndrome, which I don't know if it's still called that in, in Europe, but here that it got folded in to the uh, spectrum. But th there are some, certainly some forms of autism that could be very high functioning, even better than normal functioning. and some people say that let's just be seen as a variant to how people can be people as opposed to being disabled or damaged or defective in some way. And I think from, from what I've read of, of your work, that that's something that you would like to ascribe to at least in many cases, in, a, in any case, that there's something called neurodiversity that maybe provides more tolerance and acceptance of, of, of difference. Yeah, neurodiversity as a movement is really transforming the, the philosophy of psychiatry. And I think there are lots of interesting and positive changes, as well as, I think, conceptual challenges that we still have to face. As you might know, I think philosophers have, for a very long time, been uh, obsessed with the idea of disorder and disability. So the idea that in order to understand what medicine is, what health is, what mental health is, what psychiatry is, and to legitimize as well psychiatry as a legitimate medical field, what we need to be able to do is distinguish what is disordered from what is normal. So what is pathological from what is normal. And there have been hundreds of papers and books written about how we should define disease or disorder and how we can make sensible distinctions between conditions that people encounter in life that are within the normal range and conditions that instead signal a deviation from the normal range and therefore a pathology. And I think the neurodiversity movement, together with the disability movement, a social, social conception of disability are really putting a lot of pressure on this idea that uh, the distinction between disordered, pathological and normal is at the core of these enterprises. 
And I think that's definitely a step in the right direction. I don't find the notion of disorder extremely central to what medicine does nowadays. I think that healthcare professionals can support us in a lot of different challenges that we encounter in our lives, from lifestyle challenges to, for instance, phases and the transitions like puberty or pregnancy that are not disorders. And, and their support is necessary given the kind of expertise that they have and the access to resources that they can give to their patients. So I think focusing too much on disorder might not be a good idea, not just for psychiatry and mental health, but for medicine in general. I think it, it gives us a slightly outdated sense of what it is that medicine does. If we think that all medicine does is avoiding pain and delaying uh, death. That's not all. There's so much more that medicine does nowadays. And it's similar, I think, with mental health. So how does the neurodiversity movement do that? Because they want to show us, and I think in some cases, there is a very convincing argument there, that a lot of the behaviors that, in, that traditionally have been singled out as symptoms of a disorder are actually perfectly normal tendencies that most people uh, manifest at some point in their lives that get accentuated in certain contexts, partly also for social and environmental reasons. And I think that is a very powerful reminder that when we're thinking about any concept, whether it is consciousness, rationality or disease, it's fairly unhelpful to focus on the individual as a kind of self-standing system, self-sufficient system that doesn't interact with other systems around them. It doesn't make a lot of sense to talk about a person, for instance, being rational without the context in which the decision-making is being done or the problem-solving is being done. And therefore, it doesn't really make a lot of sense to say that someone is mentally unwell or, or distressed without considering the environment in which they are and the experiences, the life experiences that they had. In other words, they may be adapting to an unusual situation. So if the situation is abnormal, if the situation is unhealthy or, or damaging or hurtful or stressful in whatever way, then the person may be responding in a way that the, the brain is supposed to in that kind of situation. Yeah, so I think anything, like all the epidemiological studies, for instance, that now we have at our disposal showing that, for instance, late onset schizophrenia is much more common in populations that have experienced forced migration, really tells us that there is a strong link between what happens in our lives and how we respond to the environment that surrounds us. Similarly, now we know that bullying and sexual abuse in childhood are a very strong risk factors for paranoia later in life. So we know that there are these connections. Now we've got data, it's not just an intuition. And I think that changes a little bit the way that we think about mental health in general as something that is the responsibility and the blame of the individual is no longer, I think, sensible to conceive it in those terms. And because stigma very often attaches itself to those notions of responsibility and blame, then I think reflecting on how these things happen and the complex causal relations between uh, life experiences and the reaction, behavioral reactions that we have, 
really put pressure on the idea that we should shun people or exclude people because of the way they behave in certain contexts. So this is all positive, I think, positive change. I also think there are very difficult things coming up that I don't feel myself I have full resources to address in a satisfactory way. And what I mean is the relationship between what we feel we are and how we see ourselves, so identity. So as people with autism may differ uh, massively as to whether they think that their being autistic is part of who they are or is an obstacle that prevents them from achieving things that they want in their lives, something different from themselves. Similarly, people with schizophrenia may see schizophrenia as a curse and talk about it in those terms, or may think of schizophrenia as part of who they are, and actually all the the movement about madness as a positive thing, mad pride, the idea that madness gives us an insight into reality suggests that actually having a certain condition, so being in a certain way as both advantages and disadvantages can make us better and worse than people who don't have um, those experiences. So I think that is tricky because uh, the, the way in which people react differently to, uh, for instance, a diagnosis that they may receive, either thinking, okay, that's me, or thinking, oh, that's the illness that I have to eliminate, or that's the disability that I have to contend with, means that not all attitudes towards them will, will work in a way that facilitates their understanding their situation in a productive and positive way. I think like, like a clinician or a philosopher working in these areas, finds it quite challenging to see that there are these different reactions and thinking about ways of conceptualizing the difference, if not the disability or the disease, in a way that makes people comfortable with who they are or comfortable enough (laughs) with whom they are. Yeah, I'm wondering where the concept of deviance uh, fits in here, because I don't think it was in your book, but if a person's way of being in the world is too deviant, according to other people, they can't literally can't fit in. They can't function in a certain kind of social world. So if you go to work and you start singing at the top of your lungs when it's supposed to be a quiet workspace, you, you start doing things that are just not socially acceptable or, or even worse or disruptive, then that gets labeled a symptom of a mental illness at a certain point. And so a lot, so much depends on the context. If, on the other hand, you're part of a acting troupe and sometimes you start singing <laughs> and it might be incorporated into the play. No, that's really an important question. Deviance from what? So we used to think of disability and disorder as deviances from some kind of normality that was characterized by, at least in, in the philosophers of medicine, work characterized by biological function, right? That, that was the normality. If you think about people like Christopher Boris or even later philosophers who have engaged with what it is that is to deviate from normality, normality very often was thought to be what is it that we have to be like in order to maximize survival and reproduction, right? Because that was thought to be the most objective way of thinking about these things. Of course, that doesn't work in many cases. 
And so people have started thinking about other ways in which we can understand this concept of deviance. So they've been thinking about, for instance, statistical norm. What if most people in a group behave in a certain way and then the outliers then will be singled out? Again, that doesn't fit with all of the other aspects of the notion of disability and disorder that in, in, in lay thought we, we do have. So that's also tricky. And you were pointing out another way of thinking about deviance, thinking about social norms. And that's exactly the way in which, for instance, someone like SAS, he was thinking that psychiatry is not really medicine because it doesn't tell us that there is something wrong with us in the sense that we have a lesion or our brain doesn't work the way it does. Rather, we tend to call insane or mad or mentally unwell the people who behave in ways that create disruption, that are not accepted in society. And so he was really pushing for this relativity of the notion of, of social norms. As you say, in an improvisation troupe, it's perfectly fine to start singing in the middle of um, a conversation in an office where people are trying to get things done. That might not be the right approach. And then the question is, okay, what should we try to change, right? If we accept that's one of the meanings of, of mental health, that it signals a deviance from social norms, should we try to change society so it's more accepting of certain types of behavior? Or should we try to change the individual so they fit better with the context in which they already are? And I think we see this debate very prominent in education where the fact that now children are taught by sitting down for hours in a row doesn't fit some children at all. And some people think, okay, it's easy to give them a diagnosis of being hyperactive, for instance, but wouldn't it be better, maybe more difficult, maybe more expensive, just to change the way we teach children so that even the children that are more active than other children can have more space for movement and more distractions. Yeah, so we're talking about not just neurodiversity, but just plain diversity. <laughs> just, yeah, so I'm wondering if we could move on to talk about rationality, which is, I think, an early chapter in, in your book, Philosophical Psychology or the Philosophy of Psychology. And it is the underpinning of uh, some of the other discussions you have about autism and about um, psychopathy and, and so on. So you, I guess, start out with the definition of rationality being the capacity to reason according to the rules of logic, probability, and decision-making. I was a little surprised by that because I think most people have a lot of trouble with that. People are notoriously uh, innumerate or incapable of, or have very limited capacity to think about probability. That seems to be a more advanced kind of skill that requires specialized training. We have an intuitive sense of probability of whether something's more likely or not but not in any really sophisticated way. So I was wondering if a, a simpler definition might be acting with taking consequences into account versus doing something impulsively or doing something from pent up emotion as opposed to considering different possibilities. It seems like the, the definition of requiring applying the rules of logic, probability and decision making is too high a bar to call something rational, I thought. Absolutely, yes. What in the book we're doing is basically reviewing what has happened in the last 50 years in this field. And I'm sure you heard about the rationality wars or the rationality debate, where uh, you could really see almost two camps, the philosophers versus the psychologists, although some philosophers sided with the psychologists. 
But the traditional philosophers wanted to hang on to this notion of rationality as related to logic and decision-making and probability judgment. So they wanted to say, no, look, it may be that sometimes we don't observe those rules, but those are the norms on the basis of which we decide whether someone is acting or thinking rationally. Whereas the psychologists were coming up with all these incredible results, suggesting that even experts in their area medical professionals making decisions about risk or even divorced lawyers trying to predict how many people will stay together after 10 years. They were making the same mistakes as lay people in terms of deviating quite dramatically and systematically from rules of logic and probability and decision making. I guess at that point, there was a division. Some people said, yes, those are the rules, but we cannot really consider those rules that are suitable for humans. So that you can keep the normativity attached to those abstract ways of thinking. It's an ideal. Yeah. When you're thinking about humans, you have to think in different ways. And, and then all sorts of other notions of rationality have emerged, like ecological rationality, bounded rationality, and so on. They were basically watering down those standards, those norms. Or you can think completely differently and say, no, those are never going to be good norms for us anyway. Maybe we should think about rationality in different ways. So what you were suggesting is almost like a means and instrumental notion of rationality. Think about where people are, what their interests are, what is it that they want to achieve? Are they adopting the best means to achieve those goals, given their situation and their constraints? Because of course, when you make a decision, you don't have all the time in the world. Sometimes you only have limited time, limited computational resources, and so on. Yeah, I think when it comes to uh, defining something like rationality, it, I think it's helpful if the definition is at least somewhat similar to how people think of it in, in a common sense way. Otherwise, you're completely separating yourself as the clinician or the scientist or the philosopher from everyday life. I and mean, the people, the person on the street say, what are you talking about? What? <laughs> it's, they wouldn't even be able to follow. And if you, as a clinician, you need to be able to communicate with your client to have concepts that are closer to how they think about things is, is helpful. Absolutely. And that's exactly how we started this conversation, right? We were talking about concepts and you may start the investigation having one idea of the concept. Maybe that is an idea of the concept that you got from other people who worked in that area before. And then in the course of the investigation, you don't just get new information about how that concept is applied, but you actually change the concept itself. You start thinking that, okay, maybe if I'm interested in human rationality, it's not logic I should be looking at. Maybe it's something else. And I think that's why the interaction between philosophers or people more interested in the conceptual questions and psychologists or people more interested in the empirical questions is actually quite complex interaction. It's not that they, there are specific tasks. You come in, you do your job, and you go home, and someone else carries on from that. It's like a constant dialogue where assumptions are revised and, um, and you think through what you have, or very often the results of your study together and thinking about different interpretations and thinking about, okay, but if I change this variable, what would happen? I think that's the process. So we were just talking about rationality. Let's go from there to talk about delusions, which of course is very much related to the concept of rationality. And in the psychiatric uh, 
nomenclature, you have different kinds of delusions, persecution, uh, reference and grandiosity being among the most common. You have bizarre, exceptionally bizarre ones that may be more neurologic. Uh, For instance, uh, believing your family member has been replaced by an imposter or a person believing they're dead, things that are really bizarre. Uh, and there's also something called anosognosia, which is the denial of an obvious illness or impairment. So let's say you're blind, but you don't think that you're blind, things like that. So there's a whole host of different kinds of delusions. And the, the question I think that you ask in your book is, are the cognitive processes that produce delusions actually more irrational than those producing non-delusional beliefs? Or is there a continuum between delusions and ordinary beliefs? And also, uh, the, there's a question about whether an individual delusion is really different in kind from a collective delusion, because you can have a whole society believing things. I won't go into political arena here in the United States, but some of our listeners might immediately think of a certain person. Yeah, no, absolutely. The topic of delusion has been incredibly fascinating. Uh, I think is really changed the way people think about belief and rationality and behavior. When I started out a very long time ago, delusion was used by philosophers as a almost funny example of how things can go wrong. It was the paradigmatic case of irrationality. So they, they were using it as the case where the other person is so irrational that you can't even understand what is going on. You can't even give literal meaning to what they're saying, to their utterances. And one example was the Cotter delusion, which the idea that you are dead or disembodied, that seems almost self-defeating, right? Because if you're dead, how is it possible that you're having beliefs and interacting with people and talking about it and so on? So there was this idea that some delusions were implausible, so bizarre, sometimes even self-defeating or contradictory, that we couldn't take people who was who were reporting these beliefs seriously. We couldn't even think about delusions as beliefs. And then you just get into the label, they're just plain insane. Yeah, exactly. You're just excluding them, basically. You dismiss the person, put them into the separate category. Yeah, yeah. And of course, with some delusions that are very circumscribed, you may say, oh, they are insane just when they talk about their mother being an alien. But for schizophrenic delusions that seem to develop and become more elaborate and articulate and encompass entire narratives, then you end up dismissing the whole person because the person will see almost all of their experiences as related to the particular delusion or belief that they have. We've moved a long way from that point. I think there has been a lot more knowledge about delusions as a filter through the philosophical literature. And there's been just much more research about delusions being done in Australia, in the UK, in the US. And different ways of thinking about delusions and thinking about how delusions can come about. But you're absolutely right that there are still two very distinct camps. So some people would say... There is clearly something going wrong in the belief formation process. And that uh, mechanism that is going wrong is responsible for the delusion being formed and accepted and not revised in the face of counter evidence. So that delusion is pathological because there is this broken system, broken mechanisms. And there are other people who instead have a more, have a completely different view, a different uh, view where there is continuity between delusions and other beliefs that we have, sometimes not perfectly rational beliefs, sometimes 
beliefs and conspiracy theories, for instance, that are often compared to delusions in the literature. And the idea there is that, no, there isn't a, a distinct problem in the, in the mechanism. There isn't a mechanism being broken or damaged in the case of people who report delusion that is not damaged in the people who are not reporting delusion. Rather, what happens is that there are certain tendencies that we all share, but people with delusions manifest them more acutely. And possibly the reason why they manifest them more acutely is that they're also having certain unusual experiences such as hallucinations or certain feelings of salience and so on. So the idea there would be in the first group thinks that the reasoning that gives rise to delusion is faulty and there is a deficit at the bottom of it. So delusion is pathological. While the second group thinks that delusions are not necessarily pathological because, yes, they are quite implausible and outlandish in some cases, but actually they are produced by the same system that produces everyday beliefs. It's just that some of the biases that we all have um, seem to be not inhibited to, to, to the same extent. And of course, you have all a series of views in the middle there. I mean, it, I'm painting a starker picture than it actually is. But you get the sense that there is a continuity view and a difference view. Yeah, so there's a as you say a continuity between what we would think of as pathological, possibly or non-pathological. So that, that's really interesting. It, it, that that is a kind of way of destigmatizing the whole process. That that this, the faultiness in a delusion, there are elements of that kind of faultiness in everyday belief as well. And you related also to in, in your book to memory that faulty memories are ubiquitous. Everybody confabulates to some extent, they distort or embellish uh, memories of the past to make themselves look better or to fit better what this uh, new information memory, except for a memory, let's say, of a, something very specific, like the location of an object. But if we're talking about a memory of a, of a narrative, that we all change that as we re-remember. Memory is constructive. We have to reconstruct our memory rather than reproduce our memory usually. And that in that reproduction, process, we tend to change our memories and they change over time. And there have been plenty of experiments to show this. And it's, of course, very much relevant to legal situations. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a similar distinction that you can make there. You can think of confabulations or distorted memories or entirely fabricated memories in some cases as something that is definitely a sign of pathology. But you also have to recognize that in the non-clinical population, there are lots of interesting memory errors or memory sins, as they have been called, that follow a certain pattern. It's not that they're not just random mistakes, but they are things that happen to us because we are limited systems. So the idea that, for instance, you know, certain beliefs that we have might color our memory so that we tend to remember certain events better than other events, or we tend to think that our current beliefs actually are able to influence our memory of the past. There are all things that are interesting because in one respect, they're errors because you don't remember things as they actually were. But in another respect, they're actually signals that we have certain capacities to rationalize information. And, and as you were saying, reconstructing events when we don't have the original information left. So we are actually inferring from things and inferring is good <laughs> because it gives us knowledge of things that we wouldn't have otherwise. It's just that in some context, it might lead to mistake. So I think 
all of these interests of philosophers in the bits of human reasoning and human cognition that don't go well, maybe delusions, maybe uh, confabulation, maybe memory errors, really challenges this sense that if we were built like perfect system, we wouldn't make any mistakes and we would just manage to live in the world in a much more successful way. Because rather it, it is those mechanisms that make us sometimes make mistakes and be irrational are the same mechanisms that ensure that we can do so much with limited resources. And I think it's a very interesting, almost yeah, evolutionary picture of what it is to be a human agent, right? So I, I want to uh, just go off to one last topic. We have, I think, just enough time to talk about this, and that's about psychopathy, or some people who are psychopaths, because that, that's certainly, I think, among diagnostic categories, maybe the, the one that's most an anathema that we most want to are motivated to label such a person as as not just deviant, but if, as sick. We, we even use that term, we say, oh, that's a sick person. And you, you talk about that concept along with autism spectrum as being very different types of situations where there's a deficit of empathy. In the book, you talk about how psychopaths are, are capable of, of moral reasoning of certain kind, that they're not without morality, which is really interesting. And what you talk about is that there are two kinds of moral reasoning. There's moral reasoning according to consequences or utilitarianism. And they're very good at actually calculating that they know how much harm they're going to be causing. But they don't have the other kind of moral reasoning, which you refer to as deontological, which is the feeling of, of what it would mean to do that to, to a particular person. It's not looking at overall consequences of what would happen if everyone did it, but what would happen, how would I feel about doing that? to that one person, and they do have deficits in, on that score. But one thing that's, I think, that I didn't uh, read about, you, you do talk about uh, psychopaths being different from normal people, and that, and that normal people have empathy for the people in their inner circle. Like most people have empathy for their families, maybe for their extended family, maybe even for their nation. But at some point, the circles end for some people, and the outgroup you don't have to have empathy for. And so we saw that, of course, in, in slavery in, in, the, in America, and we, and we see it all the time with how much to help people who are far away. I'm just wondering with psychopaths, if there's no in-group at all, and one concept that's not in the book is about attachment disorder, or just attachment trauma, I should say, that one of the theories about how psychopaths become psychopaths is that they have no attachment whatsoever, even in infancy. And as a result, they don't think of other people as being in their inner circle. There's no one to depend upon. And, and maybe at Sennheiser it can happen biologically. They're not equipped to make an attachment. But in most cases, it's because the, there was no attachment caregiver. If there's no person worthy of empathy, you don't have empathy. And you're just in the world for yourself. No, that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. Um, the case of psychopathy and the interest of philosophers in psychopathy um, depends very much on questions about moral responsibility. I mentioned before that philosophers traditionally like to think of delusion as the paradigmatic example of irrationality. Similarly, they like to think of psychopathy as the paradigmatic case where you've got something morally objectionable, but there was this huge question mark as to whether the person acting in that way was actually responsible for what they were doing. And a lot of the questions about what really is the deficit in psychopathy 
were stemming from that interest, whether we would consider psychopaths, for instance, responsible for crimes when they commit crimes, or whether we would think that there is no other way they could act, and so they were not to be thought responsible for their actions. There have been a number of different theories about what is wrong with psychopathy, what is at the origin of psychopathy. And definitely questions about empathy have been at the core of it, as well as questions about how people with psychopathy process moral norms. And, and that's what you were referring to earlier when you were talking about the consequentialist approach and the ontological approach. So, for instance, one idea would be to say, oh, they just treat moral norms as we treat conventional norms, so they don't see the added force that morality has. They, they don't feel it. They don't feel the wrongness of something. Yeah, so that was one, one, one hypothesis. Another hypothesis was this lack of empathy. And there are lots of additional ways in which you can explain what is happening. So, for instance, I just finished supervising the work of Jane Kisby, who was working on, on psychopathy. And she argues that if you look at all the recent studies on psychopathy, one explanation that nicely unifies what is going on is this idea of future discounting. So she claims that psychopaths are extremely, they, they are discounting the future in an extreme way. They can't look ahead. They can't look really don't, either can't or, or, or are not interested in looking ahead. Exactly. So what happens is that they can imagine what will happen in the future, but what happens in the future makes no difference to them on a kind of an emotional and caring about level. Yeah, they have no concern about it. In, indifferent. And what is interesting about this approach is that not only they're not interested about other people's futures, and that's why they might commit crimes in some cases, they're not interested in their own future. For instance, they don't refrain from committing a crime thinking that they might end up in jail because they cannot care for their future selves. And I think this is a really interesting idea because it doesn't completely bypass empathy, but it shows us that empathy might not be the whole issue. There might be other things that are going on there. And of course, again, we can talk about continuity because we, I'm sure we all know lots of people who don't care very much about the future. Maybe they're not psychopaths, but there is this tendency of discounting the future that is quite common. I think you made another super interesting comment about uh, the difference between in-group and out-group. And now in some cases, extreme behavior, whether it is delusions or whether it is psychopathy, comes from not having an in-group. So having an in-group of, the way I say it is this, having an in-group of only one person that is yourself. So in the case of delusion, you see it because you don't take into account counter evidence. You don't take other people's arguments into account. You don't care about what other people say, not because you don't recognize them as objections to what you're saying, but because they're not part of your in-group and your in-group is yourself. You are the expert on your delusion. And in the case of psychopathy, that could also be the case that we tend to empathize more with people that belong to our in-group, although we are capable of empathy for other people as well on occasion. But in the case of the psychopathy, maybe that there is no in-group because there, there was a, a problem with attachment to start with. And I think there is something promising here to say that philosophy has moved from focusing too much on the individual and the deficits and the biases that specific individuals might have, has moved to consider more this kind of social elements and factors and how ultimately 
people are connected with each other. And a lot of these social dynamics, for instance, preference for the in-group, might be a factor in determining behavior and also assessing behavior that in the past was not really reflected on very much. Okay, I hope that we've given our listeners at least some sense of your field, which is a very new one, but I think unfortunately we're, we're out of time. So thank you so much, Lisa Bortolotti, a philosopher at the University of Birmingham in the UK, focusing on the philosophy of psychology and psychiatry. Thank you so much for coming on to Delving In. Thank you for having me on the program. I'm Stuart Kelter, and you have been listening to the podcast edition of Delving In, originally broadcast on KTALLP, the community radio station in Las Cruces, New Mexico. Please visit our website, lccommunityradio.org, and see what KTAL has to offer. We appreciate listener donations to help us stay on the air and to continue to grow in cyberspace.